that is what all the stories, the right-wing stories are about. It's an invasion on our borders. It's an invasion on our lifestyle. It's an invasion on our religion. And the invasion is in our sense of reality. And that's why the lies don't matter. That's why they're okay with George Santos and, and Donald Trump and all the rest of them that lie through their teeth. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is a candid conversation with Oscar-nominated filmmaker Matthew Cook. And you might think, well, what does an Oscar-nominated filmmaker have to do with politics, babe? And I'd say, well, you don't know what kind of films he makes. Along with producing and editing Deliver Us from Evil, the award-winning expose on the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church, he directed How to Make Money Selling Drugs with Eminem and Susan Sarandon, and The Survivor's Guide to Prison, which are both advocacy pieces on reforming our criminal justice system. Matthew created some of the most-watched videos of the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, including Bernie's biopic with Mark Ruffalo. And he's been a formative part of the political social media culture since he released How to Survive a Crazy Cop and Race Spading 101, both videos that went viral, reaching over 35 million views. You probably know him best from his wake-up call to Republicans or his other short pieces that now have hundreds of millions of views advocating for human rights, shared values, and a better understanding of the world around us. Matthew's films have been featured in festivals like Sundance, Tribeca, and Toronto, but I'm having him on today to talk about his new project, a podcast called American Origin Stories that covers the narratives that shape our collective reality of our country. So many of us don't even know our true history, and with education and critical thought under increasingly hostile attack, these lessons into our past, our real past, couldn't come at a better time. This podcast, just like the country itself, is at once fascinating and heartbreaking and inspiring. Plus, Matthew just knows how to tell a good story. He's the teacher we all wish we had. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, documentary filmmaker, writer, and social media superstar storyteller, Matthew Cook. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Well, thank you for joining me. I know we've never met, but I feel like we have a real kinship, right? I mean, along with your obvious passion for political commentary and your sort of drive to connect with people and inform people about their country, um, which is obviously something we both do, you also got self-proclaimed cabin fever during the pandemic and you created a project with your wife. And I also went a bit stir crazy during the pandemic and I started this project with my husband. So despite his real job, he's still stuck with me doing this. (laughs) So we're either sadists or we really like our spouses. Yes. Before we get started talking about your other projects, I want to talk a little bit about White Mirror, which is a comedy series and commentary about life in America that you did with your wife, which turns out is incredibly amazing. So before we get too deeply into politics, talk to me a little bit about White Mirror, which I'm assuming the title is a little takeoff on Black Mirror. It is. It's a t- it's supposed <laughs> to make make fun of Black Mirror and also white people, which my wife and I uh, happen to be. What happened was COVID. We were stuck in the house and with each other and going totally nuts like everybody was. And the jokes to compensate for our terror got weirder and weirder. And we finally thought, you know, what would be really fun is let's just turn these into skits and and start filming them. And we did, and we had so much fun. And then of course, because one must post everything online and it turned out 
that a lot of us in this world are as weird as we are. And so we all have had a collective laugh together. My wife is April Bowlby. She's known for being Alaska woman on HBO's Doom Patrol and being candy on Two and a Half Men and a ton of other funny roles. And her comedic timing on and off camera is brilliant. So it's impossible to not want to work with her on stuff. And we just had a baby six months ago. And oh. so that is a comedy routine. <laughs> Good luck. So we'll yeah. see uh, more yeah, exactly. White Mirror episodes in about uh, seven years. That'll right. be great. Exactly. Yeah. Before we get off this, I have to tell you, I, like, I'm obsessed with that one note. And people need to go and watch White Mirror. Go to Matthew's website and watch One Mirror. But you have one called One Note, which is one of the shorts in White Mirror. And it's basically a TED Talk on the meaningless of the universe and the human existence and the complexity of life and how shallow we've all become. But it's set in the context of like an introspective, narcissistic rock star trying to write a song that has meaning, but will also sell. (laughs) And there's literally a line after the producer, who's played by your wife, April, says, she's like, you got to dumb it down. And you say... If we dumb it down any further, we may as well microwave ourselves for dinner and be done with it because we're down to three notes. And she's like, less notes, which is why the the piece is called One Note. And I just, I have to tell you this piece, because I mean, it it's a comedy short, it's fun, right? But you're asking really serious questions. Like, what if it's not about deliberately simplifying ourselves, you know, so that we're at the education level of a bug, so we can sell bug food to the largest amount of insects. And I was like, dude, you put this in a comedy short? Like, this is brilliant. And I, I love your work because you have a way of just really relating to us, whether it's your podcast or your shorts, you have a way of bringing these kind of giant issues. You're almost like a modern day philosopher, but into a way that we can really absorb it. So I want to thank you for the work you did. It's really great. I appreciate that so much. That's one note is truly one of the the pieces that I'm most proud of. You should be. <laughs> it's it was one of those things where I think we have these these dreams in life that we give ourselves in whatever fields that we operate in, whether it's the arts or academics or anything really. And we go, God, wouldn't it be cool if? And I think I just set out a few of them of like, wouldn't it be great to make a musical about the artistic process? that tries to grapple with commercialism versus humanity. And I enjoy comedy the most as a performer when I'm making fun of myself. So I think that's that's the most comfortable space to be in because then we can all, yeah, kind of laugh at our own foibles and it helps us kind of see maybe areas where we could do a little bit more work. And it's nice to have someone like you laugh at yourself. For those of you who are just listening to this as a podcast, Matthew's got kind of this old school Hollywood good looks happening. You know, he's got the tall white man, you know, perfection thing happening. So it's important that people who look like you laugh at themselves because, you know, you've gotten the best deal in this country all the way along. And I think it's really important that we have voices like you calling things out because I think that we know that we're the ones that are going to have to change things, those of us who have come from the background of screwing it up so badly. You know, a lot of this responsibility is on us. I appreciate you saying that we need to be out there as voices and modeling how to talk about things, because I think it can be really uncomfortable. It's such a huge topic to talk about whiteness. 
I think it's it's a modern invention in the way that we understand it, particularly in the United States. It's something that comes about around 1619 in the laws of Jamestown, Virginia, when the British slaver governors changed the laws because they're worried about a united working class rebelling against them. And so at that point, they begin this process of calling black slaves slaves because they are subhuman and beginning this this racial slavery that's particularly unique, a part of the transatlantic slave trade, which is the largest maritime migration in human history. And this slave trade that that defines the character of the United States in a way is, in a in a in a way and in ways that we have not come to terms with and faced at all because it's so difficult because this idea of whiteness has been constructed as a caste, a, a class, and a culture that that so many of us aren't even aware of of this idea, but it's a it's a cartoonish mythology that pretends that it has roots not just extending back to ancient Greece and Plato and Aristotle, but all the way back to Jesus Christ. And it's totally made up and it it's uh and it's disorienting when it's challenged for people who've based their identity, which I sympathize with on this idea that that you're part of a tradition that you think is divinely prescribed. And when you challenge somebody's identity, if their identity is based on a fiction, they'll defend that fiction as if their life depended on it. And so what what we all need to do as people, and certainly you and I, I think, need to do as white people who are electing to be willing to talk about something uh, publicly, um, and all that that brings with it is just to try to, as best we can, not that we're better or worse than anyone else, but we're willing to do it and encouraging other people to be willing to do it is just model it for each other. That in today's culture, white people need better white role models. And those white role models do exist in history. And we don't need to always just be ashamed when we find out that George Washington did tell a lie and was a a murderous barbarian and did have the teeth of other human beings in his mouth and all kinds of other things about him that we'd be horrified to hear, we can also actually find out about some other amazing people in history, that there's an American cinematic universe filled with incredible people to learn about, not just white people, but there are white people too. And we can go, oh, wow, there is this rich tradition of struggling for human rights for all people that we're all a part of and we can all identify with. And isn't that exciting and grounding and reorienting? Yeah. And like listening to you talk right now, I mean, you've already mentioned 1619 and Jamestown. And, you know, that's obviously where the 1619 Project gets its name from, because that's where we had our first um, slaves. And that's where we named the word slaves, as you're saying. But each episode of your new podcast, American Origin Stories, just like your shorts and your documentaries, comes with a truly extensive amount of research. So before you even launch the pod, whose episodes are about 30 minutes each, you created a series of shorts that are between two to four minutes on everything from the Statue of Liberty to the origin of Florida and illegal immigration. And you talk about things that people think they know, but they don't really know, which is a lot of what I try to do. You have one mini episode called, Wasn't Everyone Racist in the 1700s? Which is 
kind of your answer to the idea that it's unfair to judge America's founding fathers with the moral standards of today because it was a different time back then. But you argue that the moral standards of today actually existed back then. We knew what was right. We just chose wrong. And you pose that question to us and you explain it in a way that people can start to absorb without it feeling too much like a lesson or like we're bad. Well, I think the thing is, is that we've been we've been told a false story about how America was started and who the heroes of the story were. So the first episode of American Origin Stories is about the guy who actually wrote the U.S. Constitution to the United States. All of us were under the impression, if we were awake during history class, which I applaud us if we were, because the story we were told was about a guy named James Madison, who... (laughs) Most of the highlights of his story are a snore fest. The guy was a monster. He was a, his family was monstrous, and he didn't write the Constitution. The guy who wrote the Constitution was a man named Gouverneur Morris, who was a New Yorker, an East Coast intellectual, who said that the curse of slavery was going to haunt the nation for centuries if we didn't eradicate it at its founding. He was appalled by the slavers and by slavery. He was the main speaker at the Constitutional Convention. And he gets mentioned in documents and history books as like an aside because he's sort of this, oh, Governor Morris, wasn't it silly what he was saying? Well, to whose benefit was it to write him out of history? It was the benefit certainly of the slavers at the time, but also what the slavers represented, which was the extreme end of an oligarchic system of governance that would keep these very wealthy landowners in control because yes they wanted to overthrow a king but they didn't want to overthrow themselves in the process so what they created was a stepping stone on the way to a more egalitarian society it was better than a monarchy but it wasn't a true democracy they were terrified of democracy and so today we see this the the fascist movement in the United States, and I should be very particular about what I mean by that, the movement in the United States that we see today, whose intention is to dismantle democratic government in the service to what? Well, in the service to oligarchy. It's a cultural oligarchy, because that's the only way you can get people to vote for oligarchs, is make it seem like they are their champions, representing their cultural identities, all made up stuff really terrifying stuff, actually, if we really face it honestly and truly. But this was this was the benefactor, was this culture and this way of thinking. So then when we go back and we go, oh, that's not even who wrote the Constitution. What was James Madison's legacy? Well, his legacy was being a slave owner on a, on a, on a work camp called Mount Pleasant. I mean, he was the villain of an of a origin story that has a hero. It's just that hero lost, but he did write the constitution. And he did, uh, he was the father of the Erie Canal, which essentially created modern New York City as we know it. So the legacy of our, of our tradition, and by I say our, I mean the people of the United States is glorious. We created New York City. Like we have a lot to be proud of when we look back at it. And that history extends and goes all the way through the 1800s. I mean, the founding mothers of the United States, and by the United States, I mean the founding mothers of the American dream, Florence Kelly, Mary Bethune, Frances Perkins. These are names a lot of people haven't heard of. I hadn't heard 
of them until I looked them up. But they created the legacy that led to not only the women's right to vote, but what women did with that right to vote, which was ending child labor, which was labor rights for all Americans, which was creating the the groundwork necessary for the Roosevelt administration to do some absolutely incredible things. In the midst of defeating the Nazis, they created a middle class that had never existed before. In the, in the modern history of humankind, most people were in poverty. Well, these women created the groundwork for the middle class, truly. So to know about them and to celebrate them is to give us not only um, something to be proud of, but also direction and clarity on the work to be done so that we're not scared by, you know, words like socialism or, you know, being called a commie or something when you, when all you want to do is, is collectively take care of one another. It takes a yeah, lot of brainwashing. Fair. Yeah. It takes yeah. a lot of brainwashing to be taught we shouldn't care about each other. I already love your work. Um, I loved your work throughout the Trump years when you were doing videos to Republicans and videos about Earth Day and videos about Labor Day and explaining things to people. Because I think people are really starving to actually know things, but they don't want to feel stupid. No one wants to feel stupid and no one wants to feel like they had the wool pull over their eyes and no one wants to feel bad about themselves, which I think is one of the reasons the sides that are trying to move us towards a fascist world are saying like, here's an identity and you get to fit in and feel good about yourself. And like you're saying, that's what people hang on to because they feel like, okay, well then I'm good. I think the Christians do it too. You know, I'm a good person. Here's my identity. But when I listened to that first episode, the ghost who wrote the US constitution, it blew my mind because I'm someone who studies American history and politics. And I didn't know who the ghost was, right? And all the amazing things that he'd done. And it goes back to this idea that we often hold up the wrong people to be remembered and sideline the ones that we should be acknowledging. And so I'm sure that's one of the reasons it drew you to these stories, because it reminds me of the conversation I had with Dahlia Lithwick when she had her new book come out, Lady Justice. And one of the stories she includes in that is the almost completely unknown Polly Murray, who was the human rights activist who wrote and would become the foundational writing for Thurgood Marshall's winning Brown v. Board of Education argument on segregation, who wrote what would become the central theory of gender equality for then lawyer Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she argued on the basis of sex. And Polly Murray was this black woman, an activist, a prolific writer, an influencer, who was also a person who was very clear that they felt like a man trapped in a woman's body. And so despite their huge influence on society. This is not the kind of person we hold up in our history books or the kind of person that if the Republicans get their way, we'll ever talk about in the future. And yet here are these people that live these truly amazing lives and change the world to make it a better place. And just like the protagonist in your ghost story, they don't make it into our history. And I find that fascinating. Is that what drew you to telling some of these stories? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes we... We go through our lives and we are doing various jobs and having different sorts of experiences. And we're like, man, my life is a random series of events that don't seem to have any connection. And then suddenly you go, oh, wait, this is really cool that I did that because this enables me to do this and this and this. And, you know, we're, we're so in the dark about so much. And, and I think it's really important to, to remember how little we know and approach things from from kind of a humble way and not 
always take for granted that, you know, the people that we, that we trust and we look to for answers always know all the answers and to do, you know, I'm I'm gingerly stepping into this area of saying, you know, to, to do, to do your research and to learn how to be discerning. And, and I think like one of the things that, that I experienced in the, in the course of my random life is that I started out in my filmmaking career as an editor, as a long form editor. And what you do as a long form editor in storytelling is you look at an enormous amount of information. So for example, your average narrative feature documentary film might be 90 minutes at the end of the day, but at the beginning of the day, it's a hundred hours. So you're looking at an enormous amount of material that usually, whether you're the filmmaker yourself or you're working with other filmmakers, all of those stories seem really important. And so the decision to, to say, okay, this is the main character. These are the important moments of this main character's life. And this is where this happened. And we should show this moment where she did this and, and did that. And then at the end of your story, you go, okay, that's your story. That might be a true story, but by omission, there might be something in there that's actually much more important. And so my job as an editor for many, many years was to look at stories and go, actually, that's your main through line. And so being someone who's interested and curious about history, it's not like I went, I'm not a historian. Like you said, I'm a, I'm a student of history, but my training is as a storyteller but in a particular aspect of storytelling, which is hunting for the story. And so looking at history books, like, you know, sort of mentioned earlier, and I mentioned it in the podcast that I kept seeing this guy, Gouverneur Morris's name pop up as this aside. And I was going hey, why isn't anyone talking about this guy more? Because he seems like a real main character here as opposed to, and then I found out, you know, Teddy Roosevelt wrote a book about him and, and I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is the story. And so I got really excited about just finding the great historians who were doing this work and then making it palatable because like a lot of us who aren't historians, I have a short attention span too. So even though I'm giving you 45 minutes answers to your questions here. In general, when I go back in the lab, I'm like, how do I do this in the shortest time possible and 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 deliver this in a way that I would like to consume as a as an audience member who, who myself is someone with tremendous ADD. Well, that's the thing though, right? I mean, the basic gist of the episode you wrote is about the man who actually wrote the Constitution, the yeah. first draft, but also the person that came up with the most famous preamble, we the people of the United States, in order to yeah. form a more perfect union. And yet it's a name we're not familiar with. And you point out in your episode that by starting the Constitution with we the people, this Gouverneur Morris, who most of us had never heard of, created a national identity that we still use today when we talk about what it means to be American. As you can probably tell, I love to know more about our history and think about our future and what we can do to make things better. These kind of conversations leave me hungry for more information, but I also just get hungry. And our sponsors today are here to help out with that. Green Chef is a California certified organic farmer's meal kit. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat more balanced meals that you don't even have to think about or go shopping for, Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. They've just expanded their menu, so you can now choose from over 30 weekly recipes with the options to mix and match meals from different dietary preferences in the same box. 
So you can order vegan one day and something with beef the next. Their newest collection of recipes is called Protein Packed. People with high protein dairy preferences can choose from three weekly menu items that each include an average of 40 proteins per serving. Anything from Greek chicken salad with mint olive tapenade to enchilada spiced turkey bowls and almond crusted barramundi. And you can add to your weekly orders with their Green Market, a one-stop shop for quick breakfast, brunch, and wholesome lunches. So shake off the cooking blues with easy to follow recipes that support whatever healthy lifestyle you're trying to follow. Green Chef recipes feature premium proteins, seasonal organic produce, and sustainably sourced seafood. It's the only meal kit that offsets 100% of the carbon footprint and plastics in every box. And right now, Green Chef has the most amazing deal. 60% off when you use the code politicsgirl60. Just go to greenchef.com slash politicsgirl60 and get 60% off your first order plus free shipping. I'd forgotten how much I liked to not have to think about what we were cooking each night. I don't know why it took me so long to get on the Green Chef train. Greenchef.com slash politicsgirl60, the number one meal kit for eating well. Now, of course, you might not be the only person eating in your house, which is why I'm thrilled to be supported by Little Spoon. Little Spoon is a one-stop shop for healthy, easy meals and snacks for babies, toddlers, and big kids delivered right to your door. I can't tell you how much I wish this had been around when my son was little. You can have Little Spoon in your life for years while making your mealtime healthy and tasty and easy. Little Spoon delivers fresh organic baby food from single ingredients for the new eaters to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. Their toddler and big kid meals are free of junk but taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters love them. Think of things like hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and pot stickers and gnocchi. And they have healthy snacks with organic smoothies and convenient pouches made in amazing flavors like strawberry banana shake. And everything is made with the cleanest, highest quality ingredients. Buy it for yourself. Buy it for the grandparents. Buy it for the babysitters. Take the guesswork out of feeding your kids properly, especially with people who might not have the time or inclination to do it the way you'd like it done. Little Spoon comes right to your door and into the fridge or freezer. You pick the menu and change it up whenever you want. The price is right, the quality is unmatched, and you know that you're feeding your child healthy, sustainable food. It's a win right across the board. So make the chaos a little more manageable with time-saving, delicious, healthy meal kits your kids will love. Go to littlespoon.com and enter the code politicsgirl at checkout to get 50% off your first Little Spoon order. That's L-I-T-T-L-E-S-P-O-O-N.com and enter our code politicsgirl for 50% off at checkout. Lucky Littles, Happy Bigs, littlespoon.com. That's why people get very upset when it's like, we wrote a story, like you said, by omission, where we left out certain stories in the American origin of our country. And I think you put it really well, and I want to get it right. You said in the podcast that the danger of a romanticized, idealized origin story is that they deprive us of the perspective and humility to overcome the supremacist chosen delusions that we've been given, right? And I think that's why people feel almost personally that. attacked. Yes, you're very brilliant. Sometimes. Oh, I like that. You know, this I like is that. 
I agree with that statement. I agree. It's very that. clever. Um, but that's the thing. I think that's why people feel anxiety when they hear that Jefferson actually owned slaves. You know what I mean? And that he was not such a great guy. Or they feel anxiety when they hear about these founding fathers or the framers, and they're not exactly who we thought they were. And it makes them feel like, well, does that mean America's not who I thought it was? And you're like, maybe. But that's also okay. Come at it with humility. Come at it with questions. And come at it, you know, to move us forward. Like this idea, as you said, of romanticizing and idealizing our origin stories, because is is what brought us to where we are today. It can tie directly to this false story we have of ourselves that allowed us to compromise to the problems we deal with on this very day. Like the compromise that allowed the South to keep slavery and the smaller states to have equal power in the Senate is the very thing that led to our civil war. It's the very thing that led to the necessity for our civil rights movement. It's the ongoing battle for justice in America. It's the unfair advantage certain states have in our federal government, which over time has gone on to solidify the power of the minority against the majority of this country. These are all things that happened that weren't so great when we made a great compromise back in the 1700s. And if we can relate to that, then we can start to unravel it and change it. Yes, Yes, the writer of the Constitution thought the document was ultimately a failure. And that's not hyperbole. He felt that it was a failure. Why did he feel it was a failure? He felt it was a failure because it allowed the slave states to continue their expansionist dreams. They tried to invade Canada under Madison's leadership in the War of 1812, and they got tens of thousands of people killed. New citizens of the United States were killed in that ridiculous war of expansion, and a lot of Native Americans were killed as well when uh, when they expanded territory through the Midwest and captured, you know, yet again more land that wasn't theirs. But we don't have to identify ourselves with that because there was a whole group of other people who were vehemently opposed to it, and that's the tradition we want to embrace. And we don't want to be gaslit into thinking that the identity of being an American is being on the bad side of history. And it isn't presentism to apply the morality of today to the morality of the, of that time, because the morality existed back then. It just doesn't get yeah. talked about. So yeah, that's the purpose of talking about history. It's super important because as you said, it connects directly to now. It's the narrative of the identity of who we are as Americans. I think what we see and why we see what we see, and you just did this great kitchen episode on Instagram where you talked about someone is lying, you said. So, you know, you can look at it and it's not normal politics and it isn't normal politics at all. And I think it's hard for us to face what's happening because as rational, nice people who want to get along, it's really hard to confront someone in your family who's a sociopath or who's pathologically lying or who's been convinced by a pathological liar that reality isn't what it is. It's so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. If anyone's you know, listening who's dealt with that, you know how uncomfortable it is to talk to, to somebody about their behavior when it's that off the rails. And that's what we have to face right now. And we have to face it with an understanding of what's happening because that will give us the strength to confront it. And what's happening is there is a false identity based on a false origin story. And reality is crashing in. And it feels like an invasion. 
that is what all the stories, the right-wing stories are about. It's an invasion on our borders. It's an invasion on our lifestyle. It's an invasion on our religion. And the invasion is in our sense of reality. And that's why the lies don't matter. That's why they're okay with George Santos and, and Donald Trump and all the rest of them that lie through their teeth. And that's why even you know on the Democrat side, we've got some habitual liars there. But by contrast to the pathological liars, we're like, ah, oh, you know, there's no, there's no question who we're going to kind of vote for and elect, which also puts us in a difficult position because all the oxygen is being taken out of the room by the, by this other side. But that's the explanation that we need to, that's the understanding that we need to wrap our minds around is that there is this sense by people who've adopted this false origin story that their, that their very identity is being invaded. And that's why it works so well, this constant cycle in the news, which the rest of us are left to pick up like, like garbage collectors, you know, picking up their trash um, that they've thrown on the street, you know, all their, all their BS. That's why they adopt it, because it's the whole purpose and objective of it is to control reality. And the reality is, is that, you know, they are living in a world of delusion. Well, in many ways, you know, a lot of us were living in a world of delusion if we look at our origin story for what it really is. And I think by actually addressing it and seeing it head on, we could actually see it as an, an opening, you know, to to redo things. You know, if you look at the Great Compromise from the very beginning of our, our nation's history, you point out that like that that constitution almost didn't pass. It only passed by three votes. And most people that voted for it were kind of like, ugh. You know, they weren't, no, no one was really thrilled, but it got it done so we could keep the union together. But ultimately, the idea was probably that they would go back and try to reconsider the choices later. You talk in the episode about how Jefferson thought things should expire after 19 years. You called yeah. it Jefferson's math, right. that each new generation should get to define the rules and laws of their time, right? And it gets people thinking about this idea that we're still living under a text that was written that long ago, and how nuts that really is. And I think it's most nuts. of the framers would have thought it was nuts. They would have absolutely. And, and there were so many, there were so many other ideas that were being presented and discussed at the time. I mean, Thomas Paine, for example, and Thomas Paine is an, is somebody who I've got an episode coming soon. I don't know which one it'll be. I haven't decided yet, but it's it's the origin of the middle class. And it's just one of my favorite topics in, in general, because it is the American dream. The American dream is that we don't have to live in a feudal system, that you can maybe have a job that you, that you like, that you can you know, own a piece of property, that you can take care of your family, that your family can live there together, that you can make something of yourself, that you don't have to uh, live in, in any type of slavery, slavery or wage slavery. I mean, this was all kind of new stuff. The motivation for people to, to buy into this idea of declaring independence from the king in the late 1700s was partially inspired by this guy, Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense, which was like the version of something going viral at the time. And everybody was reading Common Sense. Well, Thomas Paine also wrote another piece, a uh, little rant about agrarian law, in which he basically says, look, as a human being who's born on the earth... We all kind of have rights to the land. And so if a property owner cultivates the land, they really ought to pay dividends on that land to any other human being who lives on the land because we kind of all own the land. And isn't this a bit of a, a philosophical kind of quandary? 
And so if you read that text, what Thomas Paine is, the guy who motivated the independence of the United States, he's calling for a universal basic income. This is not a radical woke, you know, someone just came up with it yesterday because they're entitled to something that they shouldn't be entitled to idea. This is common sense. Still, all human beings living on planet Earth probably have a entitlement to the resources of planet Earth, like air and water and land. And it sounds crazy, but it's not crazy. It's only crazy because we've been gaslit into thinking that you say something like that and you sound like a commie. Commie. You don't. Socialist yeah, okay. crazy. Oh my God, run. <laughs> no, we should definitely just give it to 68 families. I think the Earth belongs to them. <laughs> they deserve it. I think that makes a lot more sense. It does. <laughs> it does to me. I just think that we're sitting here with this knowledge, right? But then we have a Supreme Court making modern day judgments on originalist or textualist positions, right? That from the 1700s, basing on the Constitution, they're quoting people from the 1700s to justify taking modern citizens' rights. We have octogenarians in Congress who no longer have a real connection to the country as it is now and how much it's changed in the time they've been around. And yet they're the ones in charge of our laws and the whole thing feels a bit broken. And yet, if we are really open-minded and we really look at our history, not the origin that we were told, but the real origin of our country, that's kind of how it was designed in the original compromise, right? Like we that's right. we romanticize it, but it's kind of, it's working almost exactly as it was designed. Yes, correct. It's the system is working as designed. And James Madison wanted the constitution to, to function and when we say James Madison wanted the Constitution, let me be even more specific than that. James Madison and his fellow aristocratic landowners wanted to design a system of government that would keep landowners in power for generations to come. And as discussed in that first episode, he was very clear, and you can you know, verify these quotes. They wanted a country that would never be in fear of a peasant class taking it taking over but just outside of the of these secret meetings were other people saying all kinds of stuff that made far more sense and there were people in the meetings saying stuff that made more sense gouverneur morris like your ghost been talking about the ghost he was saying look we rich people are always going to try to exploit poor people so you you need to quarantine them you need to get them sequestered so you really can see um, what where their motivations are. And not only that, you're going to want to to make sure that they have all the incentives in the structure to behave with integrity, because without incentives, they won't. But also to, to the point of the kind of the discussion and the, the argument uh, with those who kind of idealize this document that was written hundreds of years ago, mostly by slavers is that there were other people at the time who they based their ideas on who had modern, more progressive ideas. So like economics, for example, a lot of conservatives talk about Adam Smith. It's like the father of modern economics. Even in Adam Smith, he's writing that people who control the means of production are going to try to exploit the labor class. Adam Smith, who, who is this guy that's always referenced, he sounds like a Marxist. Like these aren't these aren't crazy wild ideas that in a marketplace driven by essentially what's like a gilded class of of entrepreneurs who figure out a way to get a lot of people to create wealth for them 
that these these people will compete. And in an unregulated market, eventually you're just going to have one winner. And that winner will essentially govern an entire marketplace. So it's the same thing as whether you don't like a tyrannical government or you don't like a tyrannical corporation governing your marketplace. It's all the same thing that that actual conservative people and liberal people are worried about mostly the same stuff. It's just that through this this false narrative, again, I'm coming back to that, we've been led to believe, you know, that that one thing is freedom and the other thing is not, but they're they're both not. Yeah, they're both not, which is how we end up with people like Elon running Twitter and Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. And you have people that we've basically made a new aristocracy of the ultra rich and hundreds of years have gone by, but we never really evolved much past a country found on an aristocracy where the wealthy could check the power of the peasants. We're still yes. kind of run by the aristocracy who want to check the power of the peasants, you know? And that's that's another great example. I, I do have an episode. I think the next episode is going to be about Martin Luther King Jr. and how he gave the United States a second Bill of Rights. And that Bill of Rights is very similar to the one that Roosevelt gave us, who's the greatest president in American history, I would argue. But the episode after that, I think I'm going to do one called Should Society Own Its Social Media? Because this is another origin story, the creation of the internet that was essentially done by our government to create a network so that information could not be controlled in one space and that we could share information between experts. And so the idea that this has now kind of convalesced into something where one wealthy person should own it defies the whole purpose of its construction, which was funded by taxpayers in the first place. If we imagine for a moment that our social media profiles were similar to our cell phones and that we had kind of like a phone number and a place to contact us, and that had some regulations around it, you could expect in an environment like that any social media profile could communicate with any other social media profile, just like your cell phone. The idea that there isn't universal standardization for the basic technologies that we've all agreed to use is a wild new radical idea. Imagine you buy a Ford truck, but you can only drive on Ford roads. That's what we have in social media today. It is the communist nightmare that everyone was worried about where you don't own your own stuff, you rent it from a governing entity, you're forced to live within their environment, you don't control how you opt, everything is secret. Like if you actually break down how it, how it, where it came from and, and where it is now, it's nightmarish. Like you yeah. follow that, you follow that story and you're like, oh my God, we can't, we can't live like this. Cannot Elon, you're this out. anymore. Elon, you're gone. <laughs> well, that you're would fine. be fine. Elon yeah. can be out. That would be fine. Yeah. But yeah. see, here's the thing. This is why I love your work. And this is why people need to listen to your podcast, because you tell these stories, these big concept idea stories so incredibly eloquently, but with a conversational air and real humor. It's like you're really just talking to us, like we're just having a conversation and you're telling me a great story and you're a real talent because you draw me in, you know? And I said earlier, like, I kind of see you as this modern day philosopher. You have an eye for the aesthetic, which is why your videos and your films look so beautiful. But you're a filmmaker, right? And you're an editor first. So you know how to craft a story in a way that fits together. So even if your your videos are just dialogue that you've written and you're performing, you make it feel intimate. The text feels authentic. And it's, it's as if you're just sort of a conduit to the story rather than a performer performing. And it's a real gift. 
So before I have you go, what story do you think America is writing right now? Because you're talking about stuff that happened in the past. So what do you think people should be paying attention to and fighting against so people don't look back on us 200 years from now and think, boy, they really blew it? Oh, my God. Okay. I think that where we are as a culture, this is, how do I say this nicely? How do I say this in a way that doesn't make us feel more uncomfortable than we already are? I think we're so gaslit by the nature of the way social media is currently constructed and the way that our our media conglomerates just power through the 24-hour news cycle and it's like the headlines are just so sociopathic like a hundred people dead and next to that it's like what did they say on the bachelor and you're like oh my god i can't like how do i how do i deal with this i mean even as as individual people we're unable to just on a biological level kind of wrap our feelings around these giant issues and i think the thing is is that we need to trust that that feeling is correct. And I think about mm, maybe 10 years from now, we're going to look back on this time and we're going to look at some of the social media um, practices as being far more dangerous than cigarettes or driving without a seatbelt or any of the things that we've, we've outlawed and regulated. We are in a time where we're allowing the most powerful communications technology ever created in the history of, of humankind as we know it are being used like weapons-grade psychological warfare to get us to feel in the most intense ways so that we click buttons for advertisers. And that's the model for how we communicate with each other. And so we have to create a defense against that and against all the stories that have been put around that that make that seem okay. And so, you know, there's a lot of, of, of discussion these days, especially younger generations of people who are, who are now coming out and saying like, we're anti-capitalist and it's super, super scary. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And so I think the story, and what does that word even mean? And I think like the story that we need to be telling ourselves is we are part of, and this is how we began the, co the conversation on this podcast, so this is going to be a good place to, to leave us off. There is one central story that's consistent now and all the way back to that mysterious beginning, whenever it may have been. And that is that humankind is in a struggle between, one note, materialism and human values. Are we going to be driven by greed, by selfishness, by short-term gain, by power? by material acquisition, by fame without greatness, without contributing something, or are we gonna be driven by human values, meaning loving each other, being aware that we're part of the community, being interested in having what we do be of some benefit, and the proof of which is when we plant a seed, does it grow into a fruit that's edible or is it poisonous? Like, are we contributing to something that makes the world better, whether that's something in, in a single moment, the way we are in our behavior, or whether it's something grand. And I think that the answer to how to be a part of the right side of history is to remember, as long as there's a war within ourselves, there will be war in the world. And so our job is to try to create that harmony within ourselves, 
to self-regulate, to, to really care about ourselves in order that we can be a part of that movement toward a better nation and a better world. And that's, that's just reality. And that's been proven over and over again in history that people who fortified themselves, all the people we talked about at the beginning of this podcast and Gouverneur Morris and Florence Kelly and the founding mothers of the middle class, these were all people who really fortified themselves, who invested in, in really getting to know and understand the world more deeply and in a wider way. And then they walked out in the world and they, and they made it so. And so that's, I think, the story. Yeah, that is the story. And I think we can also say we can make it so without necessarily being written about. I don't think, I think our need for fame sometimes distracts us from our need to change things. And I know that there's so many people out there who know right from wrong, who want a better, fairer, more just nation. And we just have to continue to convince them that that is possible if they continue to stand up and fight back and you know, talk about these things. Be curious. Like you said at the beginning, you said, I have a question, right? Like, be curious. It's re-engage with our humanity because at the end of the day, that's all we're going to have left and we have to uh, protect it. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Matthew. Anyone who loves America has to love your work. Um, you show your passion for the country every day, but also for truth and for humanity, which is what we should all be striving for. So before you go, tell everyone where they can find you to watch or listen to your work. We have to do this. You know, this is who we are now. So the podcast is called American Origin Stories with Matthew Cook, and it's available on every podcast platform. And you can also follow me on social media where I put out all kinds of nonsense. And that's at Matthew Cook Official on Instagram and Facebook, those two conglomerates. That's it. Well, just to Facebook. And say, oh, YouTube. YouTube is good. That's also Matthew Cook Official. That's Google. They're not evil. No, but you're definitely not sarcasm. even Matthew. And I hope I hope people will watch you because at the end of the day, I know you just had a baby. I know I started this project because I had a child and I couldn't leave him in this world that we had right now. I had to do something to make it better. Such a big part of the motivation. I just hope everyone feels that. I hope yes. everyone feels that, that we what we have now, though it's not what we want it to be, it doesn't have to be like this. And those of us who care about the future generations and who comes after and what comes after... We have, to, we have to stand up and be louder and prouder um, of our humanity. Amen. We are in the vast majority, so um, there's nothing stopping us. There certainly isn't. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Matthew Cook, a man who knows how to hunt for and then tell us the story. The story of America, the story of government, the story of our shared humanity. Talking to Matthew reminds me to approach my ignorance from a place of humility and curiosity. Not feel bad about what we don't know or what we thought we knew but turns out to be wrong, but to approach it as a challenge, to make better what is from truly knowing what was. Our history has so much to teach us about making the future better. And the more we approach that with willingness rather than hesitation, the better off we'll all be. I want to thank Matthew for joining us today and you for being open-minded enough to listen. We really can improve and being willing to try is the very first step to change. Until next week, PGR. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.